You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 63, Buzzards Bay and Machias. The Siege of Boston in 1775-76 mostly involved the regulars and provincials staring at each other from across the water. There were a few minor skirmishes, like we discussed a couple of weeks ago. But beyond those, the regulars had a pretty solid defensive position in the city itself, which the provincial army did not dare attack. At the same time, General Gage did not seem terribly confident that his British regulars could do anything offensively until he received more reinforcements. Even the few regiments that followed Generals Howe, Clinton, and Burgoyne to Boston, along with additional regiments from New York and Halifax, did not give Gage confidence that he could conquer New England. But if the colonists had neutralized the regular army, they could do little to threaten the British Navy. The colonists had no vessels capable of taking on a British warship at this time. Some New Englanders had lightly armed merchant vessels with swivel guns or maybe a few cannons for defense against pirates, but nothing that could pose much of a challenge to the Navy. Now, the Navy's main job in America was to catch smugglers. It would confiscate their ships and cargo to be sold at auction. While catching smugglers was difficult given the small number of naval vessels patrolling hundreds of miles of coastline, those officers tasked with the job did their best to seize as many as possible. The officer and crew received a percentage of prize money from any ships sold at auction. Part of the interdiction of smuggled goods was the Navy's other important task in keeping supplies from reaching the provincial army. It also had to ensure that the regular army in Boston received necessary food supplies in order to sustain the occupying army. By mid-May, Admiral Graves ordered the HMS Falcon to the far side of Cape Cod, about 70 miles south of Boston, looking to interdict colonial shipping. Graves had intelligence that the merchant ship Champion was delivering food supplies from Baltimore up to the provincial army around Boston. Captain John Lindsay, commander of the Falcon, successfully intercepted and seized the Champion and its cargo. But since he was out that way anyway, Captain Lindsay decided to see if he could collect a few more prizes as well. The Falcon spotted a small sloop bringing firewood from Nantucket Island. Now, while this was technically a violation of British maritime laws, the Navy often let slide using small ships for moving around much-needed supplies locally. Lindsay told the captured colonials he would release their ship if they gave him some intelligence about real smugglers operating in the area. Although the captured captain of the ship, Thomas Wing, refused, one of his crew spilled the beans about another ship from the West Indies that was unloading cargo at Buzzards Bay. 
Lindsay, however, was concerned that if he sent the champion back to Boston on its own, it might be recaptured. Taking both ships to search out this new one also presented some risks. So instead of releasing Wing and his ship, Lindsay assigned his midshipman, Richard Lucas, and a crew of 13 or 14 sailors to Wing's ship to go out in search of the new ship at Buzzards Bay. They put several cannons on the small ship as well. The Falcon and the Champion would remain out at sea while this smaller ship went in search of a new prize. On May 13, 1775, the crew found the ship with its contents already unloaded. They seized the ship anyway and began sailing both ships back toward the Falcon near Martha's Vineyard. However, they hit fog and decided to anchor overnight before completing their trip back to the Falcon. The two ships anchored about three miles from each other. Back on shore, the owner of the newly captured ship, Jesse Barlow, figured that given the small size and crew of the ship that had captured his, he might be able to retake his ship and capture a few of the enemy. Barlow was in luck that the provincial army was recruiting in the area and had about two companies worth of recruits available. Barlow agreed to finance half the expedition with the understanding that he would get his ship back if successful. One of the company captains, Daniel Egery, took command of another available merchant ship, the Success, and took 30 or so men armed with muskets as well as several swivel guns. Egery sailed off in search of the two ships. Poor weather and visibility prevented any of the ships from making much progress. But the next morning, the Success spotted Wing's smaller ship sailed up and boarded, taking the crew by surprise and without firing a shot. Most of the crew on his ship were colonists who had been forced into this raid and had no desire to put up a fight. Now, the other ship was anchored about three miles away. Now in command of two armed ships, Egery found the ship that had been captured and exchanged gunfire with the British crew. The attackers wounded the British commander, Midshipman Lucas, and two other British sailors. They then pulled alongside, boarding the ship and forcing the British crew to surrender. Before the Falcon could discover what had happened, Egery had sailed all three ships to Fairhaven, Connecticut. There, the men turned over the British sailors as prisoners of war and returned all three ships to their rightful owners. After some time, Captain Lindsay, still out at sea, gave up on his raiding party and got the Falcon and Champion back to Boston. The capture of the Champion was a success, but of course he had to explain about the loss of some of his crew and guns. A few months later, the Provincials built a fort at Buzzards Bay to protect the area from future British raids. Now back in Boston, as the weeks wore on, Gage's regular army began having more trouble getting enough food and supplies. A couple of weeks ago, I discussed the fighting on Grape Island, as well as Hog and Noddle Islands in Boston Harbor, as regulars and provincials fought over supplies. Bringing everything over from London was expensive, and in the case of fresh food, impossible. The Navy had to find sources for food, hay, and wood, and they had to extend their search beyond Boston Harbor. Around the same time the regulars and provincials were fighting over the islands in Boston Harbor, Ichabod Jones arrived in Boston Harbor aboard the Unity and the Polly, two merchant ships full of lumber. The British, with a growing desperation for lumber, 
needed for firewood and a host of other things, welcomed Jones into town. Jones had sailed down from Machias, a small town of less than a hundred families on the coast of what is today Maine, but at the time was part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. This was an isolated community with nothing around them but miles of wilderness and not always friendly Indians. Jones appears to have lived in Machias and still had family living there. But when the port of Boston closed, Jones also had family living in Boston. Evidence suggests that he may have been supplying the army regularly during the time the port was closed to other commercial traffic and was known as a friend of the crown to both General Gage and Admiral Graves. Now, if the regulars in Boston were hurting for supplies, the people in Machias were downright desperate. A few weeks earlier, they had sent a petition to the Massachusetts Provincial Congress expressing their desperation. I have a link to the full text of the petition on my blog site at blog.amrevpodcast.com if you want to read it. The town had suffered a drought from the prior year. They had no food or supplies and could not find anyone to trade with them. They wanted to sell the only product they had, wood, to the Provincial Congress in exchange for food and supplies. Now, Jones had brought his two ships to Boston in hopes of trading this wood. It is not clear if his friends and neighbors, however, back in Machias, knew that he intended to trade with the British rather than the Provincials. His decision may have been less ideological and more to the fact that he had family who had gotten stuck in Boston and wanted to leave. He apparently also had a fair amount of furniture that they wanted to take with them. So now, with the Provincial Army besieging Boston, Jones hoped to leverage the British need for firewood and lumber to get an exception to the closure of the Boston port and remove his family and personal property. The trade would also help Machias with some desperately needed food, salt pork, and flour. He offered to bring additional shiploads of wood from Machias to sell for hard currency or anything else of trade value if the British were interested. Whether his motivation was more financial or political, Jones's decision to trade with the Boston garrison made him a Tory in the eyes of any patriots. British General Gage and Admiral Graves allowed Jones to sell his wood and also to take his personal property out of Boston on his ships, something that was technically forbidden under the Port Act. But needing merchants who would provide much-needed supplies, Gage permitted the transaction anyway. As part of the deal, Jones also agreed to return to Machias to bring back more wood for trade. Although Jones was willing to trade with the army, it was unclear whether he could convince the rest of Machias to go along. Like most colonists, the people of Machias supported the provincial government and had no desire to violate any of the rules against trading with the British. Jones was certain, however, that the desperate situation of the people would force them to go along with any trade they could get. To ensure Jones performed as promised, and to make sure other naval vessels did not detain him, the Navy sent one of its ships, the Margareta, along with him to return to Machias. Now, the Margareta was a small tender ship. She had a crew of between 20 and 40, accounts differ, and its normal use was, as I said, was a tender ship. That's a smaller ship that usually stayed with larger warships to handle tasks that the larger ship could not, like bringing men to shore in a shallow area. 
One source I read said this particular ship only had a few swivel guns. Another, which I tend to believe more, said it had at least four small cannon as well. Either way, it was intimidating enough for most merchant vessels, but not much more than that. As part of the mission, Admiral Graves tasked the Margareta's commander, Henry Moore, to recover some cannon from a small ship that had sunk in the area a few months earlier. The HMS Halifax had gone down in February after hitting some rocks. Some say a local pilot deliberately sank the ship. Other accounts hold that the pilot was simply incompetent. Since the pilot fled the ship and disappeared, no one ever discovered his true motivation. The Halifax went down with several cannon, and Admiral Graves was concerned that the Patriots might recover the cannon for use against the British military. On June 2nd, the convoy arrived in Machias. It took several days before Jones could call a town meeting to get approval to trade with the British Army in Boston. As I said, though the town generally supported the Patriot cause, it had been hard hit by a drought and the closing of Boston Harbor. With the outbreak of war, few traders were even stopping there, and without this trade they might starve over the winter. A good negotiator might have been able to convince the crowd to go along with the trade. Jones, however, was not such a good negotiator. He was afraid that the Patriots would attack him or his property for trading with the army. He insisted that the townspeople sign a document approving of his actions in trading with the regulars and agreeing to protect him and his property against anyone who might take action against him for these trades. Jones also called on Moore to move the Margareta up the river closer to town so that the British ship's guns could intimidate anyone who decided to take action against Jones or his ships. On June 6th, the town held a meeting at Burnham's Tavern to discuss the matter. The town was divided. Faced with the very real possibility that the Margareta might level their town or that they might starve for lack of supplies, a majority of the town voted in favor of Jones. With that, Jones docked his ships and offloaded supplies. However, Jones would only provide food to those who voted in his favor. Those who voted against got nothing. So the hardcore patriots in town who had voted against Jones decided they really had nothing to lose. Without food, their families would starve they had no good reason not to take action against these collaborators. Benjamin Foster was a lieutenant of militia and a sometimes business partner of Jones. He and another prominent patriot, Jeremiah O'Brien, organized a group of patriot militiamen with the goal of capturing the ships and taking the British crew prisoner. Without any arms to use against the cannons, they needed the element of surprise. On June 11th was a Sunday, both Jones and Moore attended church services in town. The Patriots intended to capture the men on land and then demand the surrender of their ships. About 30 Patriots formed a militia party to capture the men. They were not, however, able to execute the plan as intended. Those in the church saw the men advancing and had time to escape. Moore and his first mate escaped out of a window and returned to their ship. Jones fled into the woods and hid. Once back aboard his ship, Moore threatened to destroy the town unless they returned Jones. Unimpressed, the Patriots swarmed onto one of Jones's ships, most think it was the Polly, and plundered it of anything of value. 
they demanded that Moore strike his colors and surrender. His refusal led to a brief firefight with small arms. As night fell, the British captain decided that the situation was getting out of control, so he weighed anchor and began to float downstream. The Patriots, meanwhile, stormed Jones's other ship, the Unity, and decided to pursue the Margareta. Some locals pursued the ships in smaller boats and canoes as well. The two ships began a running firefight in the dark, and the Margareta was not fast enough to escape and had to stop several times to effect repairs. The British found another ship about a half mile downriver that was loaded with lumber. The crew boarded this ship and put part of the cargo on the Margareta's deck to build defenses for an expected fight. At first light the following morning, Moore abandoned Jones and tried to make his escape. The Margareta cast off and sailed for open sea. Now the Patriot commander, Jeremiah O'Brien, took command of the Unity with a crew of about 40 volunteers and was sailing after the Margareta. The pursuers were armed only with muskets and swords. The other colonial leader, Benjamin Foster, also decided to enter the fray. Another small merchant vessel, the Falmouth Packet, had docked at Machias a day or two earlier. Foster commandeered the ship and took another 20 Patriot volunteers aboard to pursue the British. The Margareta had a few miles head start and probably could have escaped, but the ship accidentally turned into the wind, causing the sails to swing wildly across the deck and slammed into another part of the ship, thus damaging the sails and crippling the Margareta. Now, luckily for the crew, they spotted another small merchant ship. Moore sent over a boarding crew to take the ship alongside his damaged one. The crew removed the boom and the gaff from the ship to replace their damaged parts. Just as they were finishing repairs, the Unity and the Falmouth packet came into sight. Once again, the ships exchanged fire in a running firefight. The Patriots called on Moore to surrender, but he refused. The slower-moving Margareta was better armed with swivel guns and grenades, but the Patriot ships were faster and had more men. Eventually, the Unity rammed into the Margareta's starboard, while the Falmouth packet pulled alongside the ship's port side. The crew of both ships jumped aboard the Margareta and began hand-to-hand -hand combat. The fighting finally ended when Moore took two bullets to the chest and stomach. His first mate, also shot but not as seriously, ran below deck and hid. The crew finally surrendered, and all three ships returned to Machias. There, Captain Moore succumbed to his wounds the following day. As far as casualty rates, I've seen several different reports, and they all seem to contradict each other. The highest I've seen say the British lost five killed and nine wounded. The Patriots suffered probably ten killed and three wounded. The Patriots, however, captured the ships and used the guns of the Margareta to arm the Polly and renamed it the Machias Liberty under the command of O'Brien. They would use it to capture two more Navy schooners later that summer. The Patriots took Jones prisoner, confiscated all of his property, and sent him with the surviving crew of the Margareta down to the Provincial Congress as prisoners of war. Now, the fact that the colonists were able to capture a British naval vessel was a big deal. As I said, the British Navy had its successes and generally controlled the waters. 
I mentioned earlier the capture of the Champion that was a merchant vessel from Maryland bringing food supplies to the provincial army. Its capture brought barrels of flour and corn to the Boston garrison. Although it did not get Jones's promised shiploads of wood from Machias, the Navy did capture other merchant vessels loaded with wood that they took back to Boston. The Navy realized, however, that their smaller schooners out alone might find themselves outmatched and captured by the angry locals, as was the Margareta. Collecting supplies, let alone enforcing maritime laws, would not be a simple task with a people at war with them. Now, years later, James Fenimore Cooper referred to the battle at Machias as the Lexington of the Seas, being the first real naval battle of the war. Calling it the first, though, of course, ignores Arnold's earlier capture of British ships on Lake Champlain, as well as the Battle of Buzzards Bay that we discussed at the beginning of this episode, both of which happened earlier. Machias, however, was a full ship-to-ship battle, which Arnold's raid really was not, and it also resulted in the capture of a Navy ship, not just prize ships like those at Buzzards Bay. But even after Machias, the colonists still were really in no position to challenge the British Navy. At best, the provincials might capture the occasional merchant vessel or an isolated small tender ship like the Margareta. They were an inconvenience to the Navy, but not a real challenge. It would be some time before the Americans would have a proper Navy, and they would mostly have to await the arrival of the French fleet to pose much of any challenge at sea. Next week, we're going to head south to view the Second Continental Congress again, where they decide quickly that a full-scale war is going to require the establishment of a Continental Army. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi there. Back again for another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. Before I get to that, I wanted to mention that a couple of weeks ago, I recorded an interview with Podcasting Smarter a podcast that interviews podcasters. Since I'm recording this episode in advance of the interview, I don't know how it went yet, but by the time you hear this, it should be out and available for listening. Uh, If it is, I will add a link to my website, www.amrevpodcast.com. Generally, I try to make this podcast about the topic of the American Revolution, not about me. But if you are interested in why I do this or how I got started, you can listen to this interview. My podcast also made Podbean's featured list recently. If you just joined the revolution after seeing us listed there, welcome aboard. 
Okay, on to this week's book selection. Now, normally I select a book that deals with the topic of this week's episode. It's usually one that goes a little deeper or carries the story a little further than I can in one short episode. Uh, This week, my book recommendation is something completely different. The book I want to talk about is Valley Forge by Bob Drury and Tom Clavin. Valley Forge, of course, is where the Continental Army camped during the difficult winter of 1777-78, while the British occupied Philadelphia. I probably won't get into this in the podcast for a couple more years. So, why am I recommending this book now? Well, the timing this week is not about the subject of the podcast, but that the book is just about to be released. That's right, this is a brand new book. The publisher was kind enough to send me an advanced copy, and I loved it. There are a few books about Valley Forge already published, but this one is very good. It covers the period when the British take Philadelphia in 1777 until they abandon it about a year later. Valley Forge is an absolutely critical time for the Continental Army. We remember it primarily as a rather desperate winter and a time when the soldiers finally got some professional training. The authors, Drury and Clavin, have collaborated on a few other books involving various events in U.S. history. They have a background in journalism as well. The book itself is about 350 pages, with another 50 pages or so of notes and indices, although the final version may be a little different. I found it to be well-written, and that it provides a good understanding of that period of the war. If you have already read books on the topic, this one does not really disclose anything new. It's certainly better than the fictional account that Newt Gingrich produced a few years ago. Uh, And I don't mean to pick on Mr. Gingrich. I really just prefer interesting nonfiction to a book that blends fact and fiction in a way that you cannot really separate them. Drury and Clavin's book sticks to the facts, but it does it in an interesting and compelling way. The publisher releases the new book on October 4th. You can pre-order it today on Amazon.com so that you get it on week one. Remember, if you order through the link on my website, www.amrevpodcast.com, Amazon gives me a commission that helps support this podcast. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you will join me next week for another American Revolution podcast.